great to be here. I was telling someone earlier this morning, I think this may be, this has got to be among my two or three most favorite churches in the world. I just love coming here, and I'm terribly sorry it's been about 10 years since I was here last. And one of the reasons why this is among my favorite churches in the world is because of this guy right here, who's one of my favorite persons in all the world. Uh, it was a joy to get to sing beside him this morning. I'm reminded of my very first visit here. Dale was leading worship, and uh, I was sitting out here with, with my family. And the song, the hymn that we were singing was on one page. The hymn that Dale was singing was on the other page. <laughs> but uh, he was singing it very well. <laughs> it was just a different one than the rest of the congregation. Uh, great to be here with you all this morning. Um, I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ in Trujillo, Peru, and in Cajamarca, Peru. Also, uh, my wife and family sends their greetings. Now that our kids are, are older, most of them are out of the nest. We have two that are still at home with us. But while we're on home assignment in New Braunfels, they've got friends there in the church. And uh, the youngest one is about to turn 16. The other is, is almost 18. And so they, they want to stay with their friends. If we travel around to churches in the San Antonio area or Austin area, they go with me. But when I go beyond Austin, they say, tell them all hello for us. So uh, they send their greetings. Uh, sorry, they, uh, sorry I couldn't get them here this morning. Uh, but they do send their, their greetings. Um, if, if you've got your Bibles hand, handy, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read just a couple of verses out of chapter 21 and then a little bit in chapter 22. This is that glorious passage in the book of Revelation that talks about the city of God and how the city of God descends from heaven to earth. And I'd love to read um, both chapters 21 and 22 in their entirety because there's lots of interesting stuff there, but we'll just, we'll just catch a couple of verses at the beginning of chapter 21 and then skip down to chapter 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then he goes on to describe a little bit about this city. We learn about the streets of gold and the the gates of pearl and all of the other precious stones that are there for the foundations of the city and things like that. And then in chapter 22, we read, starting at verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the, the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Now, that's a 
a fascinating passage for a number of reasons. I read it this morning because because our whole philosophy of of ministry, our whole approach to to missions and ministry in Peru is, is really built around this idea of the city of God. This is a theme that starts actually at the beginning of the Bible and it runs like a crimson thread through the whole Bible and then the, the whole Bible ends with this theme again. And because time is short, I'm just going to kind of abbreviate this. Um, but basically, if we look at the early chapters in Genesis, we, we see in chapter 1, God creates the world, then He creates Adam. He calls Adam to, to be His vice-regent. In other words, He, he is... Uh, made in the image of God and he is called to subdue the earth and have dominion over it and to rule over the earth. And then in the next chapter, chapter 2, we read about the Garden of Eden and God places Adam in this garden. He's to serve there faithfully as a priest. The garden is kind of like a sanctuary and Adam is supposed to serve there as a priest. But we, we read about some other things that at first glance, don't seem to have anything to do with anything else in in the story there. For example, we read about this river that flows out of the garden and it divides into four rivers and it goes to the four corners of the earth and waters the earth. But downriver in the land of Havilah, down uh, in one of these rivers, where Moses tells us, and there's gold there in, in Havilah. And the gold there is good. And then there are all these precious stones. And I've always, always used to wonder, scratch my head and say, now why is, why is Moses telling us all this stuff about the gold and the stones and, and all of that? Well, that's actually a very important theme that we see picked up in the book of Revelation. Adam is called to subdue the earth, but essentially what that means in the context of early Genesis is he's called upon to to build God's city. He's called upon to take this garden, which is beautiful and, and glorious, but to bring it to, greater, to a state of greater glory. He's, he's charged to build God's city. Of course, we know how the, the, the story in the garden ends. Adam sins against God. He falls, uh, and, and the whole world falls with him into corruption. But one interesting thing is, with Adam's descendants, the, the idea of city building does not fall away. They still have this idea of building cities because the very first thing that we see Cain doing after he kills his brother is that Cain builds a city and he names it after his son. And then a little bit later we read about the seventh generation from Adam, Lamech, who is twice the murderer that Cain was and he was a bigamist, but also his people were the ones who developed all d- developed a a, a, a a very high level kind of culture they developed metallurgy and music we're told and of course metallurgy the p- whole point of that is to know how to make swords and instruments of war and so there there we see that Lamech is building a civilization he's building a city as well uh, but again sort of like the city that Cain builds not named it's not the city of God but it's the city named after his son for his his own glory likewise Lamech builds a city builds a civilization but it's not to glorify God it's it's for violence and idolatry but then a little bit later we read about Nimrod 
Nimrod doesn't just build one city or two cities, he builds eight cities. And among these cities are, are Babel, or Babylon, and uh, Nineveh, or in, in Assyria. In other words, some of the classic enemies of God's people. These civilizations that are known for idolatry and violence and wickedness of all kinds. And then, at the very end of that first main literary section in, in Genesis, chapter 11, Remember, chapter 12 starts the whole story of Abraham and the descendants of Abraham and Israel. But up until chapter 11, that, that first main literary section comes to a climax in chapter 11 with what story? The story of the city and the tower of Babel. And in essence, what, we, what Moses is telling us there is that Adam was called upon to build the city of God, to build a beautiful and a glorious and a godly culture and civilization, but instead what his, what his descendants end up doing is building Babel, building a city dedicated to idolatry, dedicated to violence, dedicated to every kind of, of evil that we can imagine. And so we see that, that what God charged Adam to do, or at least Adam in, in fulfilling what God charged him to do, was a colossal failure. But why did we read this passage in Revelation? Revelation presents Jesus as a new Adam. Jesus is a new Adam who finally, at long last, fulfills what the first Adam failed to do. Jesus is the one who builds this glorious city. And notice all of the themes from Genesis that occur here. There we have the city, and we see that in this city is the tree of life. In this city is the river of life that flows through there, and the tree of life is on both sides. Now it's, just, it's not just one tree, but it's a whole bunch of trees of life that have multiplied and grown all down the river. But where is the gold and the precious stones that in Genesis 2 were downriver in Havilah? Where are they now? In the book of Revelation, all of that gold and those precious stones are now in the garden and have turned the garden into a beautiful and glorious city. That's the, that's the Bible's picture of the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to build the city of God. To build the city of God, in, in the sense of building the church, establishing the church, not just as a, a, a religious club that meets on Sunday, but it's an image of the church. This image, the city of God, is an image of the church as a community of God's people, as a, as a visible, physical, social, even in a certain sense, political community of God's people that exists in the world to glorify God and to bring everything under the lordship of Christ. That's the mission of the church. And so in Matthew 28, when Jesus says, after his resurrection, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Trinity. Now, the new creation began with Jesus' resurrection. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He's the beginning of the creation of God, Colossians tells us. 
but not the original creation. He's the beginning of the new creation. He's the first Adam or the first man in the new creation. He's the new Adam. He's fully God, but he's also fully man, and he's the new Adam in God's new creation. And so, like the first Adam, he has this commission, this charge to build the city of God. But the interesting thing is that he has included us in that task. He says, come with me. We're going to go build the city of God in this world. I want you to come with me and engage in this task with me. I wish I had a whole lot more time to talk about that. That's a, for me, that's a beautiful theme. I, I could go on forever about it. But you probably would prefer to see some pictures of Peru. So let's, let's do that. If I can figure out how to work this thing. Um, there we go. Okay. Um, here's a glimpse of, of our team in, in Peru. Up in the top left, you can see uh, um, Hermes or Hermes Tomas and his wife, Aline. Uh, Aline came to us 10 years ago as Aline McLean, a lawyer from Jackson, Mississippi, and she's our team administrator and coordinates short-term teams for us, and then married this guy, Hermes, who's a deacon in one of our churches, and he heads up the uh, the microfinance ministry and economic development. In the middle top there is Rebecca McElwain. She's a teacher in the Geneva School. On the top right is Dale and Susan Ellison. That's kind of an old picture. Their kids are uh, much bigger now, most of them out of the nest. Uh, Dale is an elder in one of the churches there, and he works closely with the Geneva School as well. Um, the bottom left is Steve and Diane Hill. Uh, they've been working in the, in the mountains in Cajamarca in that region for uh, about eight or nine years. They're actually on home assignment in Mississippi right now. In the middle, in the bottom, that's Alonzo and Esther Ramirez. Uh, Alonzo, is, Alonzo and Esther are from Peru. Uh, I met Alonzo when he came to the United States to do doctoral studies, and uh, I... I I never thought in a million years about being a foreign missionary. It, it had never crossed my mind at all. But one day at, in the bookstore in, ja in Jackson, Mississippi at, at Reform Seminary, I walked into the bookstore. Alonzo was in there. And uh, this, I don't even remember what it was now, but something frustrating was going on in, in the church at the time. And I said, I said, Alonzo, I should just pack up and go to Peru with you. And he grabs my arm and he looks at me and he says, you mean that, brother? And then I looked at him and I said, no, I didn't mean that. <laughs> but uh, he got his claws in me and hasn't turned loose since. And so uh, I ended up uh, going to Peru with him. And uh, there were originally four families there. Um, I tell this story about our family. Jamie, my wife, initially said, Okay, we'll go to Peru, but for three years, only three years, not four, not three and a half, three years. And there were the Ramirez's and two other families, and they said, oh no, we're in this for life. We're, we're going to die in Peru. We're there forever. Well, now uh, those other families are back in the States, have, have been back for several years, and we're still in Peru. I tell folks, Jamie's just about ready to decide whether or not to make a long-term commitment after 20 years. And then in the bottom uh, right, that's Stuart and Meg Mills. 
Uh, they're from the Baton Rouge area, and they're actually on home assignment right now, getting ready to go back in, uh, in just a few days, actually. And Stuart heads up our seminary. This is a glimpse of our family. Um, you know, when you've got seven kids and they're little, it's hard to get them to sit, sit still for a photo. But when they get big, it's hard to get them in the same place for a photo. So this, this photo of them all together is 10 years old or maybe even older. Uh, our oldest, Lauren, is in San Antonio. She's married as a nurse there. Just had our first grandbaby. Our second, Cullen, is... Uh, he's in the Army at Fort Bragg in the 82nd Airborne, just graduated from Ranger School about a week or about two weeks ago. Um, and uh, we're not proud of that at all. And then Noah, our third, he is in Austin. Uh, he's a counselor at a, uh, a, a rehab place there. And then Abby, our fourth, she is at A&M. She got married in December, and she and her husband are both students at, at A&M. Um, and then Catherine, she is a freshman in college in Trujillo, Peru. And then Olivia and Millie are the last two. They're the ones that are still at home with us. And uh, you can see, well, folks look at this and always think Jamie's one of my daughters, too. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm growing this beard back. I, I used to have a beard a long time ago, and then my daughters would come home every day and they would say, Dad, our, our friends ask us, why is your dad so old and your mom is so young? Would you please shave that beard off? So I did for a long time. But Jamie's about ready to give up the, um, the fight against gray hair, and so she doesn't want to turn gray without me looking awfully gray. Uh, but anyway... So I'm growing this thing back. All right, so a bit about Peru. Where in the world is Peru? Peru is in South America. It's on the western coast on the Pacific Ocean. Um, we have three main geographical regions in Peru. You've got a narrow strip of desert that goes down the coast where we get almost no rain whatsoever. We get a half inch of rain a year in the city of Trujillo. Uh, all the moisture that that comes uh, that drops in Peru comes either down from the Caribbean or over from the Atlantic, but it can't get up over the Andes Mountains, and so there's nothing, there's no moisture to fall on the other side. The Pacific Ocean, there, it's all cold water currents, and so we get almost no precipitation off of that. This is the city of Trujillo, where we live. It's about a million people, or a little over a million people. It's the educational center for the north of Peru. We have 11 universities there, approximately 100,000 university students at any given time. Once you get up off, off of the, the desert coast, up into the mountains, then the scenery changes dramatically. Uh, the mountains in Peru are beautiful. Uh, this is a valley. I think this is the Huaraz Valley. It has a ring of snow-capped peaks around it. Most of them are over 20,000 feet high. This is the city of Cajamarca. We lived there for two years at the very beginning of our time in Peru. Uh, it's uh, about 9,500 feet in elevation. It now has a population of probably 250, 275,000, something like that. In Cajamarca, even though it's a 
pretty good sized city. It's surrounded by all of the things that you think of that are traditional to Peru. The, you can see the campesinos in their very traditional dress. It's very common to see a herd of cows uh, walking down the, the street there in, in town or a burro delivering milk. They, it's interesting, they have these burros, they're trained pretty well. They, no one has to lead them. They'll put these big milk cans on their back and the burro knows where to stop along the way and people come out and get their, their milk. And then on the other side of the mountains is the Amazon jungle, my favorite part of Peru, actually. Beautiful area. We like to say that our purpose or our mission is to build the city of God in the urban centers of northern Peru. So that whole idea that we talked about of building the city of God, that is, that's in the background or perhaps even in the foreground of everything that we're doing in Peru. We're not just we're planting churches, and, and that's in the center of everything that we're doing, but we're planting churches as more than just a, a club that meets on Sunday. It, we're planting churches as a visible community, a visible society in the midst of these urban centers. That, that mission is fulfilled primarily in these ways. I don't know if you can read that, but church planting, seminary, university ministry, medical ministry, Christian education, uh, summer camp for kids, uh, microfinance, and then a fairly new program called Christ Kids. It's a, it's a child development program for kids that are growing up in extreme poverty, and I'll tell you more about that in a moment. A few pictures of the churches in, uh, in Trujillo and in Cajamarca. The Cristo Rey Church, that's Pastor Jaime Avellaneda. Uh, that's in the central part of Trujillo. This is uh, an Easter sunrise service. I think that was last year's and a Good Friday service as well. We, the church is, is, um, is right on a park and, you know, uh, we, we make a point of going out into the park on Easter Sunday morning and doing our best to wake everybody up and uh, inform them of the news. This is, it's actually an old picture, but this is the church in the Arevalo community, one of the communities or neighborhoods within Trujillo. It's uh, Cristo Restaurador. Uh, this is where we have the school and, and clinic and the Christ Kids program right now. That's Luis Mendoza, one of our seminary students. Up in the top right, um, that's Pastor Ricardo Hernandez. A couple of the ordinary kids from the church. Ladies group in the church. This is a, a newer church plant called Cristo Redentor, Christ the Redeemer. It's in a very, very poor neighborhood and one of the poorest in all of Trujillo, and one of the most violent, um, Pastor Percy Padilla has, I don't know how many times, has had a gun in his ribs, uh, uh, you know, trying to get him out of the community there. And uh, if you, as you pray for Peru Mission, please pray for Pastor Percy Padilla. He's in a, a very difficult situation there. That's 
that fellow with the thumbs up, that another one of our seminary students, his name is Brian. Uh, this, this church, it's in a neighborhood called Virgen de Socorro, which is the Virgin of Help, or like the Virgin of Perpetual Help. And I always tease Pastor Percy. I say, Pastor Percy, I think you are the only Presbyterian minister in all the world who, who pastors the Presbyterian Church of the Virgin of Perpetual Help. This is the Witch and Sal Church. One of our first efforts uh, in arrive, upon arriving to Trujillo, which in Sal is one of the neighborhoods uh, in Trujillo. This is our very first church plant in Peru. This was up in Cajamarca in a neighborhood called Los Rosales. This is one of the rural churches up in the mountains in the Cajamarca region called Manzana Mayo. This is another church plant this is this church was actually completed uh, the was was built um, the building was built and completed a couple of years ago and I still don't have uh, haven't updated my photos yet but that's a, a short-term team I think from Greenville South Carolina who was helping us do the foundation of it this is the newest church plant in the city of Cajamarca in a neighborhood called Kiritimayo Kiritimayo is up on the side of the mountain overlooking the city, and it's just a glorious view of the whole city there. And, the, and because it's built kind of up on the side of the mountain, the, the top floor is actually the street level. And the top floor is where the sanctuary is, but then under that we have a fellowship hall. Under that we have classrooms for Sunday school, and they're actually pretty big. And then under that is the, the manse or the, the pastor's house. Um, and this has been completed for a while, too. I need to update my photos. This is a rural congregation. This, this is actually the second oldest Presbyterian church in all of Peru. It was founded by the Free Church of Scotland in the 1920s, but we helped them, re, we helped them build a new building, and this was the inauguration service for that a number of years ago. Uh, th this is the village of Walkey, and they're having a big celebration for the inauguration of this new building. Uh, you can see the ladies are peeling potatoes there, and uh, can anybody guess what the meat is that they're preparing in the top left photo? It, goat is a good guess, but it's not goat. It's cooey. Cooey, cooey is guinea pig. Come see us in Peru, and you will be honored by uh, getting to eat guinea pig. Actually, you won't have to eat it, but uh, um, you know how we say when people ask what something tastes like here, we say it tastes like chicken. Well, there, you know, it's what does it taste like? It tastes like cooey. Um, it's about like eating a squirrel, actually. Uh, these things, they, you know, if you go to see some of these folks out in the villages and they want to honor you. So they'll go in the back part of their house and they, where they have all of these guinea pigs running around and they're, they're pretty big, they're like that. And they'll get them and they'll stick them in a, in a burlap sack and they'll carry them outside to where they have, um, you can see pots of boiling water and then pots of uh, boiling oil. And so they, 
they take the, pull the guinea pig out of the sack and they cut his throat and drain the blood out and they drop him in the pot of boiling water, kind of like we do hogs in the States, to scald him and then they scrape all the fur off. And then after that, they open up the abdomen and they take out the GI tract. They leave all of the good stuff in there. You know, they leave the good stuff like the kidneys and the liver and the heart and the lungs and all that. That's the good stuff. You got to leave it in there. And then you drop them in the boiling oil. And so, as you might imagine, the, the guinea pigs aren't real happy when after all of this is done to them. And they come out of the boiling oil with their claws and their teeth and they're looking at you like, like that. They've been flattened out on that plate there. But anyway, all that to say, come see us sometime. And, uh, and we will treat you, we'll treat you right. Um, seminary, uh, we let this guy teach once in a while. Um, some really interesting things happening in the seminary now. Um, for the first 10 years or so, 10 or 12 years, we had, you know, we had seven or eight students at a time, um, but they were all from our own churches, all Presbyterians. But we would have, from time to time, we would have folks from some of the Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches, Assemblies of God, uh, Nazarenes, things like that. They'd come to us and they would say to me, Oh, Pastor, I would love to study in the seminary with y'all, but my pastor won't let me go to the Presbyterian church to, to study. A few of them would sneak over every once in a while, but, but for the most part, their pastors would not allow them. But in the last several years, we've actually been holding our classes at, a, at an evangelical study center in the, in the city of Trujillo. It's not connected to any denomination or to any particular church. Um, the owner of the place is a Peruvian married to a lady who grew up in Peru as a missionary kid. And he's got a great library and a, a big place where folks can come and study. And uh, a, a big place to hold class. So we've started holding all of our classes or most of our classes on neutral ground and now all of a sudden uh, these folks are coming out of the woodwork. They're coming from Assemblies of God, Nazarene, Church of God, all of these different groups they are coming to study with us. And uh, my, my lectures every Monday night, every Monday night I have five Pentecostal pastors sit, uh, seated at the table right under my lectern and they will say, they'll say, pa Pastor, what, what do we reform people think about such and such? You know you're starting to make some progress when they, when they talk like that. Um, we, we have a, a couple of levels of the program. The initial level is, uh, we, we use the third millennium curriculum. Uh, that's, if you've heard of it, it's uh, Richard Pratt, who's a longtime professor at RTS, Reform Seminary. He developed this, this full seminary curriculum, and um, you know it's, it's a seminary level, and it's all online, it's all for free, and it's in a whole bunch of different languages. And so we have some of our guys who are leading that, and um, what we've done is we accept 30 students each year in what we call a cohort. We receive 30 new students into this cohort, and they go through the whole program. And this is a sort of a three-way partnership with Birmingham Theological Seminary and Third Millennium and Peru Mission. And Birmingham actually gives our guys a degree when they complete that program. And the Peruvians are 
eager to get a degree, you know, something that, that shows uh, that, they, that they completed it. And so the first level of everything that we do is the, the third millennium stuff. And uh, so we, have, we have open up a new cohort every year. We accept 30, but we have 60, 70, sometimes 80 people applying to it that we, that we uh, a good, you know, most of them we have to reject actually or tell them wait until, until next year. Um, so lots of good things happening there. Uh, we're also in, in the process of, well, let me say this. Beyond that, we have an advanced program, and that's most of the coursework that we ourselves have been developing over the years. That uh, things that are, uh, that, that emphasize some of our idiosyncrasies, uh, emphasize some of our uh, more theological distinctives a, a bit more, so we take them through that as well. Not all of them go into the second part, but some of them do. And then we have a, a church planting program, which is uh, basically we, we evaluate folks, and they don't have to be Presbyterians to enter into this, but they have to go through an evaluative process. If they're approved, they come into the program, and it's mostly really practical kinds of studies about how to plant a church and how to get it organized and and, uh, and, and get it off the ground. And then we mentor them as they, as they start the church plant and that, in the first several years we, we mentor them. And some of these folks are Presbyterians that are working directly with us, but some of them are just independents or from other churches. But the interesting thing about working with the others is that they're, just because of the close association with us, they're becoming much more classically reformed in their whole approach. And some of them ultimately end up becoming Presbyterians as, as we go along. Uh, so anyway, lots of really interesting things happening with the seminary now. This is one of our, our uh, uh, guy, recent graduates, Emmanuel uh, Romero and his wife, Sarai. Their two kids, uh, Shalom and Daniel. Um, uh, he, right now, he's a uh, He's in the church planting program, and he's a, uh, an intern with us or apprentice. But uh, starting late next year, he'll be uh, leading a church planting team, perhaps in Trujillo, maybe down in a city called Chimbote. We haven't decided that just yet. University ministry, I mentioned that we have 11 universities in Trujillo, about 100,000 students at any given moment. Uh, we've been doing this for almost 20 years now and uh, have a pretty significant presence there. We, it's, that's a very strategic part of what we're doing, and we're eager to try to expand that and get on more campuses just because it's such an important ministry. Um, lots of good things happening there. My daughter, Catherine, who's in Peru now. She's actually a, an RUF intern uh, there with this ministry. Uh, this fella, uh, kind of on the left side, standing up there, his name is Esdras Vasquez. He's been directing the university ministry for several years now. We just ordained him this past November. He's one of our really bright, shining uh, young guys. Also a couple of other young guys uh, on the far right 
towards the bottom. His name is Alexis. He looks like he's 16. He's actually 26. Uh, he's probably going to be ordained this year. He's an assistant with the university ministry. Um, this is the leadership group for the university ministry in, in Trujillo. One of the things that I sh should have mentioned this earlier, but one of the things that's really encouraging us uh, is just the the number of new Peruvian, solid Peruvian leaders that the Lord is raising up. Um, it, really, it's, it's forcing us uh, to really get serious about uh, raising funds for church planting because the Lord has just given us so many new guys coming up uh, and, and more in the pipeline that um, we've, just, <laughs> we've got to get really serious in a hurry about... Um, planning these new church plants and raising funds for, for that. Um, and university ministry plays a role in all of that. The medical ministry, Bethesda Medical Clinic. We have two clinics. Uh, one is in the Witch and Sal Parish, and the other is in the Arevalo or Cristo Restaurador Parish. This is Dr. Angel, or Angel, one of the dentists. Uh, this is in the, the um, Arevalo Clinic. Um, the two guys on the bottom right, uh, Dr. Omar and Dr. Kennedy, both of them are members at Cristo Rey. They're dentists. Um, the Lord has really been blessing this ministry. We're, we're up year to date. We're, we've, we've had about a 35% increase in patient flow. Uh, lots of really good things happening there. Geneva School, this is another thing that, uh, this is one of those things where, you know, we started it only about five years ago now, and it's one of those things where we say, ah, why didn't we start a school much earlier? We always had plans for a school, but we were slow getting it started. But the Lord has just blessed this beyond our wildest dreams. We have 152 students right now in um three, four, and five-year-old kindergarten, and then first through fourth grade. And we're adding new grades and new classes just as fast as we can afford to build new classrooms. Uh, it's just bursting at the seams. And the, the exciting thing about this is that all of these kids, virtually every one of them is coming from an unchurched background, but they're growing up as part of the church there. You walk through the courtyard, you see them playing. It's evident these kids think they own the place. They will say, this is my church. And when Pastor Ricardo walks by, they'll say, there goes my pastor. And they're participating in the summer camps. And they're, they're just participating in the whole life of the church. Many of their parents are starting to come now. And so um, just imagine the lives of these kids, kids that are growing up in poor areas, that had no Christian background or influence in their life whatsoever, and all of a sudden from, from just we things, all of a sudden they're growing up as part of, a, part of the Christian family and community there. Uh, I can't help but think that 10, 20 years, 30 years from now, their lives will be dramatically different than what it would have been otherwise. Yes, ma'am. They do. Uh, all of the kids get a little bit of uh, uh, a subsidy, 
And some of them get a full scholarship. The, the, the really needy kids get a full scholarship. But uh, most of them pay some, something. We are the cheapest school anywhere around, and yet, this is another reason why I'm thinking, why didn't we do this sooner? Um, even though we're the cheapest thing around, this school is, is getting close to being self-sustaining in all of its operational expenses. They're not able to build new classrooms. We have to, we have to contribute for that. But um, just their operational budget, they're almost completely self-sustaining now. And probably with one more grade, they will be completely self-sustaining. And the fact that you can do that in a very poor neighborhood and still being the cheapest one around in all of this poor neighborhood um, really is, is remarkable to me, but very encouraging as well. Ornery, ornery little rascals. We have 152 right now. And we have a waiting list in almost every grade. Um, we could add a whole bunch more if we just had more space. We're building new classrooms as fast as we can. Teams this summer, teams are going to be working on classrooms. Uh, summer camp, let me wrap this up real fast here. Summer camp, uh, every January, they're, they're out of school January and February, so that's when summer camp is for us. Uh, the microfinance, this is about um, helping folks with little tiny loans, uh, mostly mothers that are single moms just trying to support a couple of kids. A little tiny loan actually makes a huge difference to them. Also, micro savings, organizing them in savings groups uh, and uh, counseling them, giving them financial counseling and education, major part of what we're doing there. This is our, our team. Um, Adam is the guy in the, at the top, um, the director. A couple of clients, more clients. This is the Christ Kids program. Let me wrap up with, with this. This is a program that we just started a couple of years ago, uh, not quite two years ago. It's a child sponsorship program, sort of like Compassion International. Um, the interesting thing about this is that this incorporates everything else that we're doing across the whole mission. Basically, it looks like this. If you sponsor a child, that sponsorship um, of that child means that that child gets a full medical plan at our medical clinics. That child participates in a nutritional program, as you can see here, good, getting good nutritious meals each week at, at the church there. They also participate in an educational program where we've hired professional teachers that are specialists in mainly reading comprehension and math skills. Um, and these are kids that are growing up in deep poverty, extreme poverty. Um, they have almost no educational opportunities. They're mostly chronically malnourished. Uh, they're, you know, almost all of them are in broken homes. Uh, really sad situations, but these kids are coming, they're getting full medical plan, full nutritional plan, 
uh, an educational program. It's not just tutoring. This is specialists that are working with them on reading comprehension and math skills. And then all of them participate in a Bible club. And we have uh, university students from the university ministry who actually receive a small stipend from, paid from the program to, to come and lead the Bible club for these kids. We have a, a curriculum that we've developed uh, for use with them. But in addition to the effect that this is having on these kids, uh, right now we have um, 60 kids. We'll be going up to 80. We'll be adding 20 more in August of this year. Um, but essentially this incorporates everything else ar around the whole mission, from the medical ministry to the educational to university ministry to church planting to uh, the, the microfinance. All of that is, is integrated together. This in the Arevalo Church is just a pilot program. I've actually got some brochures somewhere around here uh, that describe what, oh, back here in the back, that describe what we're ultimately trying to do. We're, the plan is to, to request from the regional government a big plot of land in one of the shanty towns where we can build a, a facility, a dining facility for 400 kids. It, it will not only be the dining facility, it'll have a big kitchen to be able to feed all of them, It'll have 16 classrooms, four on either side, but on two levels. The classrooms built according to code for schools in Peru. So basically, by doing that out in this shanty town and sponsoring these kids and bringing these kids, 400 kids up through this program, we plant a church out of the same facility. Our university students are coming and involved in the ministry. They're receiving a stipend, so it's a help to them. They have to participate in our leadership development program before they can be involved, so it's part of discipleship for them. So it, it integrates everything else that we're doing across the whole mission. And uh, it's been a great success so far in this pilot project in Arevalo. We want to do it in, the, uh, in one of our other uh, churches as well and probably get up to about 100 or 120 kids there before we launch the big program. I'd love to talk more about this if we had more time, but uh, let me just wrap this up here. So, uh, how can you help Peru Mission? Well, first of all, thank you for the help that you're already giving. Wonderful. We are very grateful for your partnership. Please pray for us. Uh, I know you pray for us. Please continue to pray for us. Think about uh, becoming perhaps a monthly partner with us. All of our kids right now are sponsored but um, you could become a monthly partner with our Compassion Fund, which supports scholarships for the school, uh, uh, supports Peruvian church planters, university ministers, uh, medical care, etc. Uh, would love to talk to you more, but we're out of time. Thank you.